Hey y'all, this is Code Switch from NPR, Race and Identity Remixed. I'm Gene Demby. Normally, our episodes come out on Wednesdays, as you know, but there's something the team's been chewing on for the last few days that we felt like we really needed to hash out a little bit, and it's about Muhammad Ali. The heavyweight boxing champion and cultural icon died last week, and there was a wave of really moving, heartfelt tributes to him. Like a lot of you, we inhaled many of those tributes and remembrances, but some of us really felt like something was missing from a lot of what we were hearing and reading. The Ali we remember was getting lost, so we wanted to jump in the studio and talk about that. With me here, I've got some folks from the Code Switch team. Correspondent Karen Grigsby-Bates. What's good, KGB? Hey, Gene. Our producer, Walter Ray Watson. Hello. And our editor, Alicia Montgomery. Hi there. So, KGB, you did a radio story about this. I did. What was missing for you uh, in the coverage of Ali's death? Ali's ferocity. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody who grew up seeing him on television, um, speaking, even in newsreels now, you can pull it up on YouTube. He took, as the old folks like to say, no tea for the fever. He spoke truth (laughs) to power. He was not worried about who was going to be discomforted by it or put off by it. And and it had consequences. I mean, real, like, not able to feed yourself kind of consequences for him. And he did it anyway. And I think part of why he did did it, I, I've heard him say this before, is that, you know, it wasn't because he was stupid um, and fearless. It wasn't because he didn't know what the consequences might be. He mm-hmm. said, well, yeah, I was scared, but, you know, you do it anyway because you have to. I'm a man. So, Karen, you feel like that was missing from all the tributes you were saying for Ali? Yeah, these were nice eulogies, um, whether they were sports eulogies or humanitarian eulogies, or I met Ali in the grocery store one day and he was nice to my toddler and told him to mind his mama (laughs) eulogies. But, you know, there are all of those floating around, but there were not the eulogies that were, that pointed out um, his very incisive observations about the uh, bifurcated society that we live in and the racial oppression many black Americans live under when he was growing up. This is Walter, and, and I'd agree with that, Karen. The the thing that um, I was missing this week in terms of tributes, in terms of acknowledgement, is that his identity seems to be certainly muted because when I was growing up, he was strongly seen as this black leader. He was an and you should, we should say that you're a boomer. You're you you're Yes, let's let's acknowledge <laughs> the obvious with my gray beard. Um, it really comes through on radio. It, it really doesn't. <laughs> Stop sniping children. Yes, I, I would have to say that growing up in the 1960s, as I did, mm-hmm. um, and growing up in Chicago, Muhammad Ali was larger than life, not just because of his rhyming schemes, but because he was this athlete. He was this celebrity in the black community, in, in our black community, in our black household, who really spoke out for his convictions and his identity was strongly black, was strongly masculine, and was also tied up in militancy and being a black Muslim. And in Chicago, that meant a lot of strong things that made him singularly someone to contend with, someone to, if not look up to, certainly someone that you couldn't ignore. Well, you know, I'm not a a baby boomer. I'm a child of the 70s, which Mm. makes me just a little bit younger than Walter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But for me, when I was growing up, Ali was 
part of this generation of sort of new black leaders. You know, you had the 60s and and you had Martin Luther King Jr. on the wall in a lot of black uh, kitchens and households. But one of the things that was fresh and new about Muhammad Ali was he was not about making people comfortable with him. He was not into being humble or apologizing for being a proud black man and not just proud, but somebody who knew that he was the best in a field. And there was no sort of stepping back away from kind of the confidence that he projected just to make people feel more at ease. Mm -hmm. And I thought for me anyway, and for my family, that was having that kind of hero was a revelation. The idea that you could be yourself and your black self and still be you know, somebody who was a leading figure in in the public eye. So, I mean, that kind of strength that he projected was something that was really important uh, when I was growing up. One of the things that jumped out to me, one of the the essays that stuck with me the most in this last week uh, was by Jillian White at The Atlantic. And she wrote this essay about her father. Ali was like this North Star of black masculinity. And he was just really, he just like said what it was. He was like, I'm I'm beautiful. I'm pretty. You know, I'm, uh, he, he said he was the best, right? He backed it up. He just was really, really arrogant, cocky. Yeah. Um, he was this figure that a lot of people, black or otherwise, hadn't seen in public life. He was unapologetic about being black and being great, right? But what's fascinating about her essay was that she was saying her grandfather, her father's father, who grew up at a time when black men got lynched for being mouthy, for talking back, for being uppity, her grandfather saw Ali as sort of a threat, as a threat to black progress. But he had a very different memory of, you know, the kind of things that happened to black men who stepped out of line. He saw Ali as this counterproductive figure. And so it's one of those things I think gets flattened in the remembrances of Ali and even the remembrances of people who are their contemporaries, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, when we talk about them now, everybody, you know, you talk to old folks now, everybody was in the march on Washington, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's like a less of a sense of the fact that like these people were divisive even among black folks, you know, and that everybody wasn't on the same page when it came to them. So we didn't hear a lot about that divisiveness for example, Karen, he had that beef with Joe Frazier, which mm. was loaded with all sorts of complicated black interracial politics. So can you fill us in a little bit for anybody who doesn't know about that story and what went down between the two of them? In his first Frazier fight, you know, he's doing what he did for all of his other fights, you know, with Liston, with everybody. He's mm-hmm. just talking trash. It's schoolyard playground stuff, um, blah, 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 blah. I mean, he didn't get into your mama so ugly, but just about. (laughs) And what he did with Frazier was sort of hop on his looks, you know. So you have Ali, who's this really panther sleek, very um, gorgeous man. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even people who didn't like him would say, yeah, he's a good looking guy. Okay, I'll give him that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then And he would tell you that. (laughs) Yeah, and he would tell you that. Um, Frazier was big in a different way. He wasn't sleek. He was sort of hulking. Mm -hmm. He had a beard at a time when a lot of men weren't wearing beards. He was darker than Ali. And Ali decided to taunt him by saying, oh, Joe Frazier, I'm going to do this and that. You know, he's a gorilla. I'm going to get that gorilla and put him back in the zoo. You know, which is kind of astonishing when you think about it, because Mm -hmm. when you think about insults black people hate most, one of the things they hate most is being likened to anything simian because it makes us less human. And I'm saying us, but I should confess here, I have a soft spot in my heart for gorillas, chimpanzees, (laughs) monkeys, or whatever, much to my family's horror. So when Ali did this to uh, Frazier back in the day, it was not received kindly by Frazier. It really got under his skin. He was talking about his color. You know, he was talking about the fact that he was a gorilla. And we haven't heard very much about that, but it was a really 
ugly episode in Ali's history um, that hasn't been focused on very much because it's so embarrassing. Right. And we have a clip of one of those exchanges between Ali and Frazier. But the fools still think that that chump Joe Frazier can beat me because he went the distance twice and he ended up on a close decision. I'm going to give him a real whooping and I wrote a poem. Some of you heard it, but this is a little conscience. I got a little gorilla here. This is his conscience. I keep it right in my pocket everywhere I go. Back there. <laughs> And I wrote a short poem. It says it will be a killer and a thriller and a killer when I get the gorilla in Manila. That's right. And you see how the crowd is just lapping it up there. Right. And you can understand um, why Frazier never forgave him that. I mean, it wasn't just the gorilla stuff. Ali called Frazier and Uncle Tom, all that stuff, right? And that was sort of the, the thing with Ali. Like, as Ali became this bigger, the symbol of black pride and, you know, black separatism, sort of anti-establishment sentiment. But um, as Ali became the person who exemplified that for people, then the people he fought became the avatars of all that stuff that wasn't that, right? So at first, Sonny Liston was like the good Negro, right? He was the, the Negro who was going to put Ali in his place. But Frazier, you know, Frazier's life is defined as like Ali's foil. So if Ali is... Uh, Mr. New Blackness. Just like Mr. Like unapologetic Blackness, you know, Frazier, whether he wanted to be or not, became the avatar for all the people who wanted someone to shut up Ali. And so Frazier spent the rest of his life just really, really embittered by the fact that Ali sort of called him a sellout. Essentially, the implication that Frazier was a traitor to his race. And so, you know, as a Philly dude, I know a lot more about Frazier because, you know, he moved to Philly when he was like 15, trained Mm -hmm. in Philly. He had this really complicated relationship with black people in the city. You know, at one hand, he was beloved because he was a local hero, but he wasn't nearly as beloved as Ali was. And, you know, there was a, a statue of Rocky, a fictional white heavyweight champion, before there was a, a like any sort of tribute to Joe Frazier, who was one of the most important heavyweights of the 20th century. And later, you know, Ali would walk some of this stuff back. Saying some of this stuff to get under Joe Frazier's skin was crossing the line. We have a clip of that, too. I'll tell you something we haven't mentioned here. During that film, you distinctly, uh, well, there was reference to your calling him Clay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we he all know how that... He just says that to agitate me. He's a good, him. he's a nice man. He say that because it used to make me mad, but it don't no more. Oh, does See, he? the press, now, everybody calls me Ali. The press called me Ali. You call me Ali. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan even called me Ali. <laughs> See, so now, you know, a brother still You're... calling me Clay. He really ain't no Uncle Tom. He's just doing that to make me mad. And I don't pay no attention to it no more. Like things that I used to do to make him mad, he is admitting it don't get to him no more. And things that make other people, he's catching on to a few things, so I got to come from another angle. So he, he don't make me mad calling me Clay. Because he, he knows what it is. He just want to say that. Open. Right. Huh? What's the, what's the you point? sound good. I'm going to give you an A for that. can't make me mad. I don't, call, I don't get mad at you for that. We should point out that interview came from the Dick Cavett show, and Dick Cavett was kind of the precursor to Charlie Rose, and he was a huge Ali fan. He was. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, the thing that, that happens, no matter who was hosting that show, is, is that this conversation between this interlocutor and Ali and Frazier, I think Frazier is in the background there. Yeah. It happens in a way that um, they can't all answer for the way the rest of us feel around this name calling, around being called Clay. Sure. You know, so many years, decades later, it's still wrong. It still hurts. And similarly, um, and I mean, down to the bone, it cuts, you know, for Frazier to have been called gorilla, um, for 
any black man to be disrespected and and seemingly taunted as an Uncle Tom. You, you know, it's not the role that they see themselves in. And certainly, I'm not speaking for everybody, but certainly speaking for, for myself, watching, hearing these things and knowing how maiming, how hurtful that kind of labeling can be, we get stuck on that and, and we never forget it or we never forgive it. I've just got to say something here. It's like Muhammad Ali was a boxer. Sure. And one of the things that was so great about Muhammad Ali was that he didn't, you know, he didn't feel like he had to watch out for people's feelings or be the nice guy all the blasted time. And that was just the thing that made him so attractive you know, as a black hero. He did not have to be the sort of traditional race man. He wasn't Jackie Robinson. He was about telling people how great he was and how awesome he was. And, you know, some of us, it, it would be nice to be free to do that sometimes. Sure. I mean, and to your point about Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson was a critic of Ali when Ali decided that he wasn't going to, uh, to serve in Vietnam. Jackie Robinson, who, like a lot of black folks from the previous generation, fought in World War II, was like, this is an opportunity for you to go out there and, you know, and, and boost morale and all this stuff like that. And Ali, you know, there was this... Ali had none of, the, he, none of that. Yeah, he, wasn't, he was not feeling that at all. Yeah. That idea that Frazier, for the rest of his life, was deeply embittered by Ali. When you would see Frazier interviewed later in his life, mm-hmm. he would say, when they would ask him about Ali, he would sort of say really mean stuff about him. He would say, you know, when it, you, you see him shaking, I did that to him, right? He would, he, he, like, I gave him that brain. Parkinson's, brain referring yeah. to the Parkinson's. When Ali famously lit the Olympic torch uh, in 96, Frazier made some joke that was really poorly received at the time. But that was how embittered he was, right? And, and that was sort of the thing that Frazier for the rest of his life was this dude who had managed to get some respect but was never beloved in that way. And so... And it's kind of like post-traumatic stress almost, you know, that, that Ali says these things to him. And in the case of the Cavett interview, I think part of the reason Frazier didn't in- engage is like, I am not talking about this stuff with you in front of white people. Are you crazy? Mm. <laughs> um, and so when he has a chance to engage sometimes, if it's in an arena like that, he's not going to do it because race man that he was, he thought that was injurious to the race to sort of be hashing that stuff out in front of him. And I don't know that Ali got that at that point. So Ali was complicated and his blackness was complicated because blackness is complicated. And we come back from the break. We're going to talk about what happens when we don't talk about all that stuff. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is Code Switch. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, like us on Facebook, we're NPR Code Switch, or follow us on Twitter, we're at NPR Code Switch. That's N-P-R-C-O-D-E-S-W-I-T-C-H. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us right now. You're listening to the Code Switch podcast. So before the break, we were talking about um, all these ways in which Muhammad Ali was a very divisive figure in his time um, and how that is sort of not the way we're remembering him now. And Muhammad Ali, beloved global icon, was actually not America's sweetheart when he first arrived on the scene. Right, Karen? Yeah, that's correct. Um, Despite this staggering uh, string of accomplishments for somebody so young, he won the Olympic gold medal in Rome Mm -hmm. in 1960. In 1964, he beat Sonny Liston and astonished the world. Some people still haven't recovered from that. (laughs) Almost immediately right afterwards, he announced that he had joined the Nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. He was changing his name. For a brief period, he went to being called Cassius X, and then Elijah Muhammad himself named him Muhammad Ali, uh, Mm -hmm. which offended a whole bunch of Americans, black and white. It's like, what is it with this crazy name? His mama named him Cassius. I'm going to call him Cassius. (laughs) Cassius Marcellus Clay, Clay. and his brother was Rudolph Valentino Clay, if you can imagine. Wow. 
1967, he became globally famous again for uh, indicating he would not be drafted. He would be a conscientious objector to the war in Vietnam and got all kinds of um, hate mail, death threats, and that sort of thing for uh, for having declared this. And it's legal to be a CO, um, but you wouldn't know that from the reaction around the country when he did this. He's the heavyweight champion of the world, and he's a black separatist, and he's refusing to go to fight in an increasingly unpopular war. So he Especially was... for him, Gene, because he was going to be fighting other people of color. Mm-hmm. That was the, you know, that was the thing. He didn't believe in, in waging war um, as a member of the nation, but also didn't believe in waging war him, brown him, on other brown people mm-hmm. um, for basically white people, for the white American government. So one of the problems as we bring up Muhammad Ali's divisiveness, like the really fascinating stuff, and it happens a lot with the way we talk about all sorts of icons and heroes, but when they're either gone or too old or too sick to challenge the way they're remembered, then, you know, we end up in this place. We flatten them. We dehumanize them. Think about the way that Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King become Santa Claus figures, right? They don't become, they're, they're no longer polarizing or dangerous as they were in their lives. They're just these beloved figures with 100% approval ratings. And that robs us of the full picture of their humanity and what made them so important and notable to begin with. Well, I mean, this is Alicia Montgomery, Mm -hmm. and um, I'm going to just push back against that a little bit because, you know, this is what happens to heroes. It's not what just what happens to black heroes. And, you know, there was a time when someone who had Muhammad Ali's history, you know, one, I mean, one, some of the things that he said about white people uh, in his prime and his youth could have gotten him killed. It got a lot of people killed. Um, But this idea that, you know, 20 years later, he could be on a cereal box or in a kid's cartoon and, you know, invited to the White House. And 30 years later, he can light the Olympic torch. And decades later, he can be sort of this universally loved figure. This is something that happens to to people in history all the time. The first three paragraphs of their, their obit are about all the great things that they did and not about all the mess that they made in their lives getting there. So I, I think that you could see this as sort of a sign of progress, that as a black person, you get sort of the same hero's treatment in the United States now that, you know, uh, a lot of so-called great white men got for centuries. I think great white men might also have some of their uh, some of their mess in the first graft of the obituary because we've gotten uh, more sophisticated about that. You know, when Bill Clinton dies, it's going to say uh, William Jefferson Clinton, the uh, 42nd president of the United States and the only other in president. The only other president to have been impeached while in office died today, whenever, whenever. So the the complicated, the stuff that made him messy, you know, and complicated is going to be up front in the obit, even though most of the obit may be laudatory, because we have gotten more sophisticated about that. And we understand, at least in principle, that prominent people have complicated lives, are complicated people. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, there's there's a certain amount of character that that gets singed or certainly attached to um, deeds not so not so nice, <laughs> uh, things that we prefer not to remember. Um, but certainly, when you're telling the story, when you're um, trying to sell magazines or or certainly uh, 
memberships on on websites. Uh, you have to have something more than he was a great guy. And I, and I think that complication, at least in, in these early days of the death of Muhammad Ali, um, we're, we're not really hearing a great deal about that. And, and it's not even so much um, what Muhammad Ali did that, that may or may not have been a misstep. It's, it's just that what made him so dynamic is, is hard to compress and, uh, and make, make digestible in 30 seconds or less, as I'm having trouble doing right now. <laughs> I'll tell you, the other thing you hardly ever hear a word about is that he was a babe magnet, and he did not resist. He did not just say no to this. Um, he really enjoyed himself um, between <laughs> wives and even when he had wives. And we've heard nothing, virtually nothing about that. Although everybody will tell you, you know, once the recorder's off, uh, oh yeah, yeah, he was a, uh, he was he was a ladies man. But in fairness, but, in fairness, I'm jumping in here. Yeah. Um, in fairness, we're, we're having this conversation before the funeral and I, I think just just by virtue of that fact, you're not going to hear a great deal about him, his babe magnetness. Well, <laughs> I think you'll hear about his other children who show up at the funeral. Well, <laughs> but that would be at the I'm funeral. Quite I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm I know serious. you are. I feel you. I, I I feel you, Karen. But one, Muhammad Ali, he he was a boxer. He wasn't a statesman. He what he did, you know, with women who were not his wife. Uh, never uh, interfered with, you know, the running of, of the country. The other thing is, you know, this was 30, his his babe magnet days, his whatever kind of behavior he had. This was many, many, many years ago. And one of the luxuries of living a long life is you get to say, <laughs> that was youthful indiscretion. If I had known now, then what I knew now, I would respect it. Da, 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 da. I'm like, can we give Muhammad Ali just kind of the, you know, remember what he did over the course of his life? And so a person isn't just the the loud things they said or the brash way they behaved or some of the things that they messed up on when they were in their prime. They're also the person, they also have to be allowed to be the person who grew from that. And I think that what we hear when we don't hear all that messiness is kind of a respect for the person who he grew into. Well, and all I'll say about that is, I do think that when we deify people that way, especially when we talk about, you know, prominent black people, prominent black figures and people of color, they become cudgels for people who don't like the way people are protesting today, who don't like their politics. Um, and th- those prominent figures become a way of wagging your finger at young people, like, say, Black Lives Matter, and saying, well, you know, Martin Luther King never would have done it that way. Martin Luther King never would have gotten angry or told black people that they should get angry or made anyone uncomfortable. And, of course, he did, right? Like, Martin Luther King did those things. Nelson Mandela did those things. That was why they were so polarizing. That was why they were so provocative. That's why they changed things. The same thing was true for Muhammad Ali. People say, well, back in the day, there wasn't this internal, internecine fighting between civil rights groups. And, you know, there was no... Oh, yes, there was. Of course course there was. was. (laughs) Of course there was, right? But because these things get flattened out, right? If if the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King was just this dude who oversaw this unbroken string of moral victories, right? If Muhammad Ali is just this dude who was righteous and upstanding, then he becomes a cudgel that people who, who are... In our time, who who get to be fully complicated today, right? You know, someone who is not necessarily doing anything political 
someone like Cam Newton, right, who inflames a lot of passions, right, because he's a black dude who's unapologetic about being... The Panthers' uh, quarterback, yeah. Cam Newton, who's, the quarterback for the Panthers. Who's a direct descendant of Ali. You Absolutely. know, when you see Ali dancing around the ring, holding his fists up, going, I am the greatest, and then you switch to Cam in the end zone, you know, doing is, his little dance, it's like, hey, I did it again, people. Well, What is Cam Newton? But the, I mean, he, Ali is the predecessor to the dad. That's all that is. I, uh, I'm sorry, but that's, that. you know, that's a little limiting to Muhammad Ali. Of course it is. No, no disrespect to Cam. It's just one aspect, you know, that the sort of joy in having done this and in being able to crow about it a little bit. So we got to move to this really quickly. But um, one of the things I do keep seeing in tributes to Ali, and I'm sure we've all seen these, um, is this idea that Ali transcended race. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so As KGB, Mark Simpson would say. That's, <laughs> that was really good. That was a really good Mark Simpson. I get a lot of practice at home. <laughs> so KGB, you groaned. What do you think, I mean, what are people saying when they say that Ali or anyone transcended race? Well, I think that, you know, that means that the person has been deracinated to the point that white people feel comfortable embracing them. Deracinated? Mm-hmm. What are you saying, that, that he's bleached? Um, not physically, obviously, but, you know, they're not going to put their arms around the Muhammad Ali that we heard, you know, uh, say, you know, you white boys call me a draft dodger, yet you're running off to Canada. I'm not going anywhere. That's not the cuddly Ali they can embrace. But the later, older, calmer, more diplomatic, more the long view Ali, that they can do because it doesn't call up their own transgressions. I agree with that. I I, I agree that that the whole business of of saying that he transcended is something that even our president actually looks, you know, gives a side eye to because even in his remarks, he quotes Ali saying this, I am America. I'm the part you won't recognize, but get used to me. Black, cocky, confident, my name, not yours, my religion, not yours, my goals, my own, get used to me. You know, that was a way, even in in this whole period of of glancing by that and, and making him a, a more cuddly figure that not everybody recognizes, but, but even President 44 did. I don't know how you guys are going to talk about Ali in your homes or your lives, but it's like this conversation that we're having shows that you can say somebody transcended race. But, you know, just because there's sort of a weekly reader version of who Muhammad Ali was, it does not mean that the rest of the historical Ali, the part that's complicated, the part that's in your face, is unavailable to the rest of us. I mean, if you, I grew up in a house where this kind of, you know, understanding black history and all the complications of black history was very important. And so I didn't get just the weekly reader version of who these folks were in history. And we don't have to, we're not limited anymore by these conversations that would just give you one version of a person. Somebody over here, somebody in the white community and what we call the mainstream media can have this kind of uh, blank Uh, bleached version of Muhammad Ali, but we don't all have to embrace that. And to say that, you know, when people use the term transcended race, we don't all have to, you know, we can have our complicated Ali and they can have sort of their cuddly statesman. And I don't see those two things as interfering with each other. 
And we should also say that anybody that wants to know any of those facets, more more facets, you know, this is why Al Gore invented the Internet. <laughs> 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 all right, y'all, that's all we can squeeze into this episode. Uh, uh, we got more. Y'all, y'all talking as hell. Um, I'm, Je- <laughs> <laughs> I'm Gene Demby. I'm here with Alicia Montgomery. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you. I'm here with Walter Ray Watson. Thank you, Walter. Pleasure. And KGB, Karen Grisby-Bates, thank you for rocking with us. Anytime. Our producer, who you just heard, is Walter Ray Watson. Our editors are Alicia Montgomery, who you also just heard, and Tasneem Raja. We had production assistance from Kerry Thompson. You can catch us on Twitter at NPR Code Switch. That's N-P-R-C-O-D-E-S-W-I-T-C-H. Where's my spelling B metal? Subscribe and download this podcast everywhere podcasts can be found. Thanks for rocking with us on Code Switch for NPR.